from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, August 19th. Today, revelations about Trump's 2016 campaign and how Howard University shaped Kamala Harris. On Tuesday, the bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee put out this report. And it was the fifth volume of a multi-year study that they've had underway of what exactly the Russians did during the 2016 presidential election. Roz Helderman is a political investigative reporter for The Post. And this is the one that people have really been waiting for because it's the one that's about the Trump campaign, how the Trump campaign reacted to what Russia did and whether there was any signs that there was some kind of conspiracy between the Russian government and the Trump campaign to elect Donald Trump president of the United States. So why are they studying Russian interference in the 2016 election when we already had the Mueller report, which addressed that exact same thing? So they started this process before Bob Mueller was even appointed, way back in the early part of 2017, when it became apparent that the Russians had done something in the election. So there are two ways in which this report is really different from the Mueller report, which came out in 2019. The first is that it is bipartisan. It uh, was conducted both by Democrats and Republicans working together on the Senate Intelligence Committee. And so theoretically, any of the takeaways that are included in there, those are signed off by Democrats and Republicans. That's right. We did see yesterday both sides kind of put out statements that offered their interpretations of what you should draw from the report. And those differed quite strongly, uh, what they wanted people to think were the most important takeaways. But the actual 1,000-page report, uh, which is very fact-based, sort of recounts, you know, details that they found in the course of their investigation, theoretically, those have been signed off by both sides. So that's one thing that makes this really different from the Mueller report. The other is that the Mueller team had a very narrow mandate. They were looking for crimes. Did people break the law so they could be indicted and potentially sent to prison? This report takes a much broader look, uh, what they described as a counterintelligence look. What did Russia do and what were the vulnerabilities that were created on the American side to make our political system potentially more open or vulnerable to Russian attack? So if what came out on Tuesday is the fifth installment in this investigation that the Senate Intelligence Committee has been doing, what were the big takeaways or things that are different from what we already knew about how Russians tried to influence the election? So the big takeaway here was that, first of all, the Russian effort, it just reconfirmed what has been said by multiple groups over and over again, which was that it was aggressive, it was real, it was ordered up by Vladimir Putin. The Russians really did try to affect our political system, including by hacking documents and releasing them publicly, by having social media efforts, and by trying to infiltrate the Trump campaign. 
The other thing that this report really hit was that the Trump campaign made itself vulnerable. They did not find that they sort of actively conspired with the Russian government. And that's something that the Republicans, you know, want you to think is the biggest takeaway here. There was not an active conspiracy between the Russian government and the Trump campaign. But over and over again, this report emphasizes the vulnerabilities that were created by various members of the Trump team being open to Russian help, being eager to maximize it to their benefit. And who are those individuals who were talked about in this report? So there's a couple people that they focus on. Uh, The big one is Paul Manafort, who was the chairman of the Trump campaign. He is this guy who had had an active business and political history working with Russians and pro-Russian Ukrainians for years before he began to work for free for Donald Trump in 2016. And they describe how he had ongoing communications, including communications he was trying to hide with this Russian employee of his who worked worked in Kiev, worked in Ukraine. His name was Konstantin Kalimnik. And the Senate Intelligence Committee says Konstantin Kalimnik is a Russian intelligence officer. That's a bit new. Uh, the Mueller report, then the Mueller folks had claimed that Kalimnik had ties to Russian intelligence. The Senate has gone further. They say he was a Russian intelligence officer and that Manafort gave him access to inside Trump campaign information, internal polling, campaign strategy, what they considered the battle grounds, that Paul Manafort was leaking these insider details to a Russian intelligence officer. Uh, They also say that they've uncovered some information that this guy, Konstantin Kalimnik, may have had a personal role in the Russian hacking operation. So this is a pretty big deal. Uh, They call this a grave counterintelligence threat to the United States. The chairman of the Trump campaign posed a grave counterintelligence threat to the United States. And this was the cigar bar thing, right? Like that Paul Manafort had met with Konstantin Kalemnik at the cigar bar in New York. And this was the focus of a lot of the investigations around whether that was a point of coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia. Yeah, exactly. Uh, One of the things that we had learned through the Mueller report is that Paul Manafort and Konstantin Kalimnik actually had this sort of secret meeting in New York. Kalimnik had flown from Russia to New York for this meeting. Uh, It took place at a cigar bar in Manhattan. uh, And at that meeting, Paul Manafort gave Kalimnik internal polling data from the Trump campaign. And one of the things that the Senate report emphasizes is that wasn't the only time. They say that he provided Kalimnik information, insider information about the campaign on, quote, numerous occasions. And so who are some of the other people that this report focuses on in terms of people within the Trump campaign who were points of vulnerability? So basically, they look at all the names that if you've been following this story over the last few years, you would be familiar with. They look at George Papadopoulos, this foreign policy advisor who was told by a Maltese academic in the spring of 2016 that the Russians had Hillary Clinton's emails. And they conclude that he was this overeager guy who wanted to impress the campaign. They say that they do not believe that he was a willing conspirator with the Russians but that the way he was acting and sort of his openness to working with folks and trying to set up a meeting between the Trump campaign and Russians presented a point of vulnerability. He was a a potential vector for foreign intelligence services. In the same way, they look at Carter Page, another foreign policy advisor who visits Moscow during the campaign. 
gives a speech over there. Again, they don't necessarily conclude that Mr. Page conspired with the Russian government, but they say there's a lot they couldn't figure out about what Page was up to during this time. And part of what's interesting about both of those characters is, you know, there is a world of people who are Trump supporters who have adopted sort of a counter narrative about some of these guys to support the idea this was all a witch hunt and all a hoax, uh, that maybe they were set up by Western intelligence agents with the goal of getting the Trump campaign. And this report really rejects those conspiracy theories out of hand. Yes, they may not have conspired directly with the Russian government, but the report presents their activities as plenty concerning and the kind of thing that the FBI might want to take a look at. I'm also curious about if this report talked about Roger Stone, especially considering the fact that his sentence was just commuted and so he never even went to prison for what he was convicted of. Yeah, exactly. I mean, President Trump basically said that Roger Stone was unfairly treated. That's why he commuted his sentence. But this report, again, accepted by both Democrats and Republicans, basically endorsed everything that the Mueller team found about Roger Stone and essentially endorsed the facts which brought about his conviction. They say that the Trump campaign was very interested in figuring out what WikiLeaks had, what stolen documents WikiLeaks had access to, uh, that they were interested in that and seeking information about that even after people started saying with some you know, credibility that those documents have been stolen by Russian intelligence, that they maximize that information for their benefit, and that the Trump campaign came to believe that Roger Stone had insider information, advanced knowledge of what WikiLeaks held. Now, they said that they couldn't prove that Roger Stones actually did have that knowledge, but the Trump campaign believed it to be so, and that they were pressing Roger Stone to tell them what stolen documents WikiLeaks were going to be released so that they could use them to their benefit on the campaign trail. Specifically, they actually appear to call out Donald Trump for lying to the Mueller team. In written answers that the president's team gave to federal prosecutors, he said that he did not have any recollection of talking to Roger Stone about WikiLeaks. Uh, The Senate team found he did. They talked about it. He says they didn't, but they did. And so will this Senate Intelligence Committee report change anything going forward? Is there any potential for additional criminal charges against any of the people that they cite? Or is this just additional information about something that we have already basically hashed out? I think this is an important document for history. I mean, it's really, really detailed. It's a thousand pages long. It goes into all kinds of subjects, some of which have not really been studied before, uh, that I think when people want to understand better what happened in this era, this report will be examined and looked at. I don't think it's going to lead to more criminal charges. The Justice Department has made clear, Attorney General Bill Barr has said that he believes that the uh, original counterintelligence investigation was opened on a very thin thin read that he did not believe in it. So I, I don't think we're going to ever see additional criminal charges over what happened uh, with Russia in 2016. I will say I think that most people have decided what they think on this topic. And, you know, a thousand pages or 20,000 pages, this document is unlikely to sway a lot of people's minds. And what do you think that says about 
where we are going into this next election, because I think it's really striking the fact that here we are four years after the events that are outlined in this document. And not only is there still debate over some of these newer details of of what actually happened in 2016, but that you still have the president and a big part of the country that fundamentally does not believe that Russians actually tried to influence the election four years ago. So, So what does that say about how prepared we are going into this November? Yeah, we had the intelligence community come out just within recent weeks to say that foreign intelligence services are continuing to try to affect our political system, including Russia, that Russia has not given up. They are still trying to support Donald Trump. And that is a conclusion that the Republican Party writ large and certainly the person of Donald Trump appears to not accept. And, you know, that's pretty that's pretty difficult to know how this is going to play out in the final months of what's likely to be a really dirty, dirty campaign. Um, You know, we have seen, for instance, the president just retweeted within recent days uh, some audio clips that were put out by a Ukrainian lawmaker. Our intelligence community has said that those audio clips came out as part of a Russian disinformation campaign. And the president is embracing it and retweeting it at this very moment. So in some sense, you know, we're seeing history repeat itself. And, you know, it's sort of the classic cliche, those who don't learn from history are bound to repeat it. Well, this is the report that is that history, and I'm not sure people are learning its lessons. Roz Helderman is a political investigative reporter for The Post. I was raised to take action. My mother knew that she was raising two black daughters who would be treated differently because of how they looked. Tonight at the Democratic National Convention, Kamala Harris will make history when she accepts the nomination as the vice presidential candidate. She will be the first black and South Asian woman on a major party ticket. And Joe, I'm so proud to stand with you. And I do so mindful of all the heroic and ambitious women before me. To understand Senator Harris's identity, we wanted to go back to a story that we originally published last year. It's about Harris's time at Howard, the historically Black university in Washington, D.C., and how it shaped her future. I heard that you might have visited Howard at that time. Yes, I had visited a very good friend who was at Howard in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Mm And I had arrived looking like a college student from Princeton in sweatshirt and jeans. And I remembered stepping on Howard's campus. And I I was honestly just completely just discombobulated because everyone was so dressed up. Yes. I mean, I feel like that comports completely with my sense of of what Howard is. And I just thought, what is going on here? Is it a special day? (laughs) No, that's every day. Every day. You dress up, you show out, you look good. Yeah. I mean, I would think I was doing really well if I had like washed my hair and and blown it out. Uh, But they really. They were very conscious of how they moved through the world, even if it was just moving across the yard. 
Notice I said the yard, not the quad, but the yard. (laughs) You have all the lingo, Dan. (laughs) You've really done your reporting. (laughs) I'm Robin Gavon, and I'm the fashion critic for The Washington Post. And I'm also a staff writer. I don't know. That doesn't make any sense for this story. (laughs) So you went back to basically find out what Kamala Harris was like at Howard, what Howard was like when Kamala Harris was there. Why did you want to look into this period in her life? Well, I think a lot of people feel that they sort of become an adult during their college years. And I I think that for Senator Harris, Howard was even more important. Howard very directly influenced and reinforced equally important my sense of being and reason for being that you can and should be a leader and then you will choose the path that that will be the path that upon which you will you know lead that you can do anything it reinforced all of that that you do not have to ever be limited by people's um, limited views of what you are who you are what you can be it was such a conscious decision to surround herself in a Black environment, um, one that was really rooted in the history of Blacks in America, uh, one that in particular celebrated Black exceptionalism. Um, you know, it just sort of seemed to speak very deeply to the way that she defined herself. And I think it also was an interesting place to start in sort of understanding how she sees herself in in the world. Um, Because, you know, people look at her and sort of see this multicultural person. Because her her father is from Jamaica. Her her mother is from from India. Exactly. And I think the fact that she chose Howard, which back in the 80s, you know, people didn't say HBCU. They said a black school um, really spoke to how she personally defined herself and the way that she wanted, I think, to sort of process the world. What did she say about what her thinking was at the time and and why she wanted to go to Howard? Well, part of it seemed to be that um, she was really captivated by sort of the sheer volume of students who were like her. I mean, it was more for me about the numerosity than it was the diversity, right? Um, Meaning I grew up in a community where there were many representations of the, you know, the diversity, mm-hmm. but going to Howard and that there were so many, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and that, you know, and, the, and it's also about being around that and they're all, you know, in your age group, in your phase of life, right? That you could sort of live uh, in this space where you were not only the majority, but you were also the default. It was about understanding that it is not a niche to be Black in America. And and that, you know, we are everywhere, that our history is America's history, and that whatever you choose to do, you stand on the shoulders of those who have contributed to it and have been there before you. That your story wasn't this sort of extra story, but your story was the main story. 
So tell me about what Howard was like in the 80s. It was in the middle of Washington, D.C., which was Chocolate City at that time. And it was also a city that was not as um, sort of gentrified as it is today. There was also um, an incredible uh, amount of sort of Black culture that was in its infancy. I mean, it was the beginning of sort of the world of hip hop and and rap, and that was starting to happen. And it was also the era of, you know, Ralph Lauren polo shirts Mm -hmm. and Donna Karen and Benetton. Mm -hmm. And I say that because the students there were really interested in fashion and style and dressing up. And some of that was obviously just sort of the sheer pleasure of fashion. But it was also, um, you know, sort of part of the whole experience of Howard, which was that you sort of work very consciously aware of what it meant to be a Black person in the world and to be very proud of that. And I feel like that is representative of Howard in a lot of different ways, this idea of you are an exceptional Black person Mm -hmm. and you need to make it clear to everyone around you that you are exceptional. Yeah. I mean, for instance, the business school students wore suits and carried briefcases. In college. In college. A bunch of 19-year-olds going to class with briefcases. And, you know, I think today people might look at that and go, oh, my God, you're just sort of going off to kind of be part of the system. But at the time, you know, there was there was real pride in going off to Wall Street or becoming a corporate attorney and essentially rising to the top of the quote unquote system. Um, that was a really sort of subversive act. And I think you sort of see that in the decisions that Kamala Harris made to go into um, the district attorney's office. But a lot of it is about working the system from the inside. A lot of it is inside. about working the system. A lot of it is, um, you know, this idea that you're not going to Howard to, like, turn tables over. You're going to learn how to be the person who sits at the head of the boardroom table. I spoke to Eric Easter, who was an upperclassman uh, when Kamala was there, and he had such a great assessment of what it meant um, to be a Howard alum. You learn that at every level of need you might have, and, and through your lifetime, there is someone who looks like you who can probably satisfy that need. Which I think is a very sort of profound statement, meaning that whether or not you need a lawyer, a doctor, a dentist, a teacher, a business partner, an actress, a dancer, whatever you need. From the top to the bottom, there are people who fill all of those spaces. So you come out with a power that that makes you really sort of brave as you walk through it. So what was Kamala Harris like up to in college? (laughs) What was her major? Did she, I guess she was in clubs. She must have been in clubs. She was an economics major and she was on the debate team. Uh, She was, curiously enough, uh, a Kappa sweetheart, which is this sort of auxiliary group to um, uh, the Kappa's fraternity. I mean, everyone that I spoke to, you know, remembered her as being very nice and warm and with a big, easy laugh. You know, Kamala loved dancing and she would throw house parties um, when she house sat at, you know, a friend of her mother's here in the district. So she was absolutely, you know, 
uh, someone who was focused um, on her future, and she was a very serious student, but she was also not a wallflower. She was a lot of fun. And she also pledged AKA. She did. Alpha Kappa Alpha, which— Pink and green. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me more about AKA and why this was a big deal that she decided to be part of this group. Well, AKA, uh, the sorors of AKA, uh, they're not sorority girls. They're sorors. Um, Important to point out. Very important to point out. It's uh, the oldest, I believe, of the sororities, and it was founded at Howard. AKAs have an incredible legacy. Coretta Scott King was an AKA. And, um, you know, they really pride themselves on service and on being very civically minded. And, you know, there's like, they're like 300,000 strong around the world. And a big part of her campaign has been members of AKA hosting events for her and essentially vouching for her, not only to other members, but to other Black women and essentially saying that, you know, the fact that she is one of us speaks volumes about who she is as a person and what she understands and what's important to her. And, you know, referring to her as a sister of the Ivy is, you know, kind of shorthand for an entire speech on her behalf. I'm also curious about how you think that Kamala Harris as a political candidate reflects her time at Howard. If there are things that you see in the way that she speaks, the way that she addresses people, the way that she sort of navigates the world, that makes you think like, ah, yes, that is definitely a person who went to Howard. Well, you know, maybe it's because I I talked to people from Howard for so long and so many of them that I've been like, you know, I've absorbed (laughs) (laughs) the Howard ethos. Um, But everyone talked about, you know, the Howard swagger. (laughs) and uh, how they can see it in her. And, you know, they were very upfront about it. I mean, you know, they said, yeah, I know there's definitely a cockiness that comes from going to Howard. And I mean, it's the black Harvard. It's well, they would say that Harvard is probably like, you know, the white Howard. But (laughs) they will say that they see that swagger uh, when Harris speaks. Hey, guys, you know what? America does not want to witness a food fight. They want to know how we're going to put food on their table. (laughs) They see it when she is in the Senate and when she's questioning a witness. Sir, I'm not asking about the principle. I'm asking when you you would be asked these questions and you would rely on that policy. Did you not ask your staff to show you the policy that would be the basis for your refusing to answer the majority of questions that have been asked? Chairman, should be allowed to answer the question. Senators will allow the chair (laughs) to control the hearing. Senator Harris, let him answer. Please do. Uh Thank you the sort of exasperation that she might, uh, that might seem to be on her face. Uh, Howard alums sort of see that as sort of the impatience and the unwillingness to tolerate, you know, anything less than excellence. Um, I mean, I sort of described it as this sort of combination of confidence, cocky, and condescending that's happening <laughs> all at once. Um, and and I, I do think that some of that is attributable to Howard. But I also think that you see the AKA-ness in her when um, she, you know, has that big smile on her face. Even when she's talking about things that are, you know, ostensibly pretty serious, there is that aspect of using sort of charm and poise as, um, as a weapon. 
I also think it's interesting to think about how her career trajectory reflects some of the Howard ethos in terms of the way that you fix the system is by accruing power from within mm-hmm. the system rather than trying to overturn the system from the outside. And that's certainly, you know, what she basically tried to do or says that she tried to do as a prosecutor mm-hmm. um, to the, you know, in a way that many people now criticize, but that that is very reflective of the messages that were part of being educated at Howard in the 80s. Yeah, I think people, you know, try to ascribe the tenor of, you know, the 2019 to what things were like in the 80s. And, you know, this was a period when, you know, Jesse Jackson was running for president. The Martin Luther King holiday was approved by, you know, the federal government. I mean, these were sort of very centrist kind of victories, so to speak. And, you know, that and Howard was also not a place where, you know, people were going to become revolutionaries. It was really about becoming someone who could rise to the top of the of the system. So there were students there who, you know, who did go to Wall Street, who wanted to become entrepreneurs. There were foreign students from Nigeria, um, in particular, were mentioned, who saw Reaganomics as this really helpful policy to their wanting to become entrepreneurs. So, you know, it was not this place of sort of revolution, even though there were um, lots of people who were protesting, for instance, apartheid in South Africa, Howard has a real sort of centrist element as well. Um, and I think you're sort of seeing how that comes up against an era of wokeness and black Twitter and cancel culture and all those things. And I think there's a tension there. I don't know if out of that tension comes something that is really solid and thoughtful and progressive, but also accommodating of flaws. I think that is to be determined. Robin Gavon is a writer for the style section at The Post. for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you've been listening to this podcast over the last couple of weeks, you heard the voice of Nicole Ellis, who was guest hosting while I've been out on vacation. I just want to give a huge thank you to her for guiding you through the news while I was away. To see and hear more of her work, follow her on Twitter at NavigatingNikki. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. 